Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Will East in the Element Well studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday, y'all, as Rhino would say. How about it, Will? Oh, it's a beautiful one, too. It's hard. Yeah. I'll tell you, it was a little difficult to get up and go in the office today because <laughs> it was very nice when I woke up this morning. 57 degrees, and it's going to get up to about 70 today. Awesome. And my yard needs some work, and yeah, I was really debating. Then <laughs> I thought, well, Rhino's not here today, so I better come on in. <laughs> well, and we appreciate it. I'm working overtime today. I told the boss, overtime. <laughs> overtime. Yeah, I was uh, privileged to be a guest on the Gallo Show this morning with guest host Lucian Smith. Had a three-segment conversation about health care. You know, that's front and center in uh, the state of Mississippi, uh, especially uh, vis-a-vis the possibility of Medicaid expansion. We've already seen an article uh, based on an interview with our news director conducted by J.T. Mitchell, our news director, with the lieutenant governor who has indicated his support for Medicaid expansion. J.T. did a great job in that interview and in, in uh, documenting that. Uh, check it out at supertalk.fm. His interview it was published last Saturday. So we really appreciate He did the interview Friday, and he wrote it on Saturday and published it for us. And he sent me a link to it immediately, and I and I read it. And, and so the lieutenant governor says he supports Medicaid expansion with work requirements. That requires a waiver, meaning the state would have to request of the organization which administers Medicaid and Medicare in this, in this country, and that's CMS, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And so they would um, they'd have to approve this waiver, Section 1115, uh, That's the provision of uh, the regs, I believe, that permits states to request certain waivers. And it just means you can adjust what the the basic regulations are concerning Medicaid, because it is a federal and state-funded program. So because it's jointly funded, the federal government does give a little bit of latitude there in approving such waivers. You recall that a waiver was submitted and approved by CMS back in September. You remember that, Will? That was big news where the state of Mississippi 
and this was largely driven by Governor Tate Reeves and the governor's office, state of Mississippi proposed in the form of a waiver request to CMS some reforms to the payment model for existing traditional Medicaid, which is operated by the state of Mississippi. And uh, that, it looks like, is going to result in an additional $750 million roughly a year at a gross level. You've got to net out some other loss of some federal revenue, et cetera, uh, because of the way that, that deal works. But in general, that money is available and is distributed to the hospitals that are caring for Medicaid uh, patients. And that was just a, a way to get more money to these struggling hospitals that are having a hard time making ends meet. So, but a work requirement waiver, which is what the lieutenant governor has stipulated in supporting Medicaid expansion in the state. And by the way, the the Speaker of the House has indicated the same. He's been on the air here talking about that. Um, My personal view is that that has little or no chance of getting approved by CMS. And I simply say that because... Since uh, Joe Biden took office, he made it very clear, like day one, no more Medicaid waivers, especially with respect, I should clarify that, to Medicaid expansion with respect to work requirements. There are 10 states that have not yet expanded Medicaid. And all expansion means is you're uh, making what are called able-bodied or non-disabled adults eligible for enrollment in the Medicaid program, provided their income is less than 138% of the federal poverty level. Government assistance programs such as Medicaid, eligibility, uh, almost all of them have some sort of income eligibility test. It's based on household income, which is all the income earned at an address. It's very difficult to ascertain, especially in a state like Mississippi, where we have a lot of folks that don't have bank accounts, can't even prove their income. We have the least banked state in the country. And uh, also, uh, we have a lot of folks who don't file their tax returns. We have a big problem with that. Remember back in the COVID era when the state government created a, um, a grant program for businesses? Like 25000 bucks or something like that, and there was an application process. We well, had to be current on your tax returns. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty reasonable yeah. ask. And a lot of people were bent out of shape because they weren't getting approved. And we come to find out, doing some research, because you ain't filed a tax return. <laughs> what the heck's going on here? We're talking about businesses. Now, a lot of these businesses are pass-through entities, which means they file taxes as individuals. Okay? So the, the, the entity itself is not subject to to income tax. That flows through. It's called a flow through uh, to the individual. But nonetheless, just getting to the weeds a little bit here, this is a big, important subject. And on the program this morning with uh, Lucian, he asked me at the end, very reasonable question, okay, what do you think we ought to do? And i tell you what I told him, which I've told the legislature. What we need to do is collect some more data. And the reason I think that is because you see the, the reasons not to expand from opponents, they, they make a case for that. And then you see a reason to expand or reasons to expand from proponents. Well, a lot of that is, is kind of guessed. It's estimated. Now, I'm not saying that they're not informed estimates, but I think there's some pieces of data we could collect, we could obtain, which would either validate some of those concerns on both sides or it would refute it 
But we don't have the data. We're guessing. One of the things I've asked for from proponents who say, we got to expand Medicaid, you've heard this, or the hospitals are going to close. As if simply expanding Medicaid, which means this able-bodied adult population would be enrolled and the hospitals would be reimbursed for the services they provide them, would suddenly make their bottom lines go from red to in, in cash flow positive. So I actually don't believe that. But to make their case, I've suggested this numerous times. I did in my testimony Wednesday to the Joint Medicaid and Health Care Committees, House and Senate, Let's ask these hospitals that are that are cash flow negative. Greenwood LaFleur is one we've talked about a lot. It's a public hospital, by the way. And so we looked up their financial statements. I've shared that on the on the program. Okay, Greenwood LaFleur, assume we did expand Medicaid and had it had been expanded, let's say, for the last three to five years. Because I looked at your statements, you have been losing money the last five years. Insert that in your financial statements. Now show me what that pro forma, that model would look like as a go-forward kind of um, estimate of what the future, because this is all about the future, but we could use the past at least as a template to see, well, did that really um, cause us to be cash flow positive? Maybe it just stops the bleeding somewhat. All that's possible, but we don't have that data. We don't have that data. And from the opponents who say, well, we're estimating it's going to be two hundred to 230,000 people, but it could be 500,000 because of this, this, this. Okay, well, do we have some data to support that? i give you an example. They say, well, all those currently enrolled in the ACA exchanges receiving subsidized coverage would not, that are eligible for Medicaid, if we expand it, would leave the exchanges and go to Medicaid, in which case the state would have a 10% cost associated with that in accordance with the Medicaid exchange expansion state-federal joint funding uh, structure, whereas the state picks up nothing when they're in the ACA exchanges. That's all federal subsidized funding. Okay, well, how many people is that? So I I did some research on that. That data actually is available. The total number possible. There are 183,000 in Mississippi that are enrolled in a plan sold in the ACA exchanges that are receiving some sort of subsidies for that. There are 28,000 who would qualify for Medicaid if we expanded based on their income, if every one of them said, I'm dropping my ACA coverage and I'm going to Medicaid. That's 28000 Okay, well, we have that data. And then the other contention is, well, those who are enrolled in their group coverage, just like here at Supertalk, right? Those of us who have insurance, we pay premiums. The, the company covers some, we pay some. Well, they find that if their income is below 138% of the federal poverty level, they would just say, well, I'm dropping my group coverage at my employer, and I'm going to Medicaid expansion because it costs me nothing. How many is that? <laughs> How many of those people are currently enrolled in their group coverage? It seems with... like you could get the information on that. You could certainly survey employers. That's what you'd yeah. have to do and get that. How many employers in the state right now aren't offering any coverage to their employees because they're not required to by federal law because they don't have more than 50 employees. And and by law, they're not required to. How many is that? Yeah, that might be a little bit more difficult. I get it, but that's the data you got to have. At least get close to it. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. we got Kelly Bennett with Supertop Mississippi News at 1120, Representative Dana McLean at 1205. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. 
Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So the work requirements, which I don't think are going to get approved in, um, as a waiver, and because the, the Biden administration has already said, now, said they're not doing it. Could we get a new administration that has a different take? Sure. But the Trump administration did approve 13 states for work requirements. 12 dropped it. And that's because they got sued by numerous consumer groups, and they also knew that when that thing expires, the Biden administration is going to say no. And that's what happened. One state remains. That's Georgia. It received its waiver under the Trump administration. It didn't implement it until last year. However, they didn't do full expansion. They just expanded eligibility up to 100% of the federal poverty level, not 138. By the way, that's $15,000 a year for an individual. 15,000. It all it had a work requirement in it. It's pretty hard to work even 80 hours a month, which is what theirs is. Think about it, and earn less than 15,000 a year. It's pretty hard. You could do it, right? Based on getting paid pretty low. But you know how many have signed up? 1300. That's it. And I will say to her credit, Senator Hill knew this. Angela Hill she knew the answer, because I actually asked that as a rhetorical question to the group, just trying to get their attention. You know, it's, it's a yeah. style of speaking. If you think that the Georgia model is the one you want, here's what you need to know about that. This is what they did. You know how many people have signed up? And Senator Hill said 1,300. <laughs> she, she had researched it, to her credit. Uh-huh. So, And it's because we only went to 100%. And by the way, as an incentive... To the non-expansion states, there are 10. The Biden administration in the American Rescue Plan in the state of Mississippi has happily received a bunch of money from the American Rescue Plan. You know that. They've come on here and bragged about it. They voted against it. They bragged about it. It's true. You can go find press releases right now talking about, hey, we got all this money for you. I voted against it, though. It's a true story. Once you once that money flows, man, everybody's happy. I know. How many people we interviewed, Will, from the from the municipal and county level have talked about? Yeah, we got our ARPA money. We're doing this and this and this and this, right? Uh huh. Okay. Well, so as part of that, there is an incentive. It's part of the American Rescue Plan. Joe Biden had to go out there and do that. One point nine trillion dollars in March of twenty twenty one. There is a five percentage point incentive on traditional Medicaid to non-expansion states such as Mississippi to expand. You know how much money that is? It's, by the way, it's for two years. $700 million bucks for two years. The estimated cost of Mississippi's share of expansion, which would be 10% of the total, because the federal government covers 90% of it. That's in accordance with the law passed in 2010 of the Affordable Care Act, which provided for the expansion coverage group. 
It didn't exist until the Affordable Care Act. It's 90-10. It's different than the traditional Medicaid, which is based on per capita income of a state not to be lower than 50%. In Mississippi, that's 78. We cover 22. The federal government covers 78. By the way, that's like $6 billion to the federal government and a billion to the state. Just under a billion to the state. But I think their new budget Medicaid's asking for is right around a billion. All right, so they'll give you an additional five percentage points for two years if you expand. I'm just going through the math here. This isn't about... So it's kind of like, you know, come on down here. Right. We give you an extra. Yeah, because they're trying to get the other ten states to expand. Here's Here's a carrot. Now, the one reason, in my view, the primary reason, philosophically, to oppose expansion that I hadn't heard a single person bring up, and I'm about to, is that... We ain't got the money. I'm talking about at the federal level. Not the state. The state could technically afford it based on the surpluses we've been running. $250 million a year. We're running surpluses of $700, $800. We don't have the money. Yeah, I've said it a hundred times on this program. Every time the federal government passes a spending bill, I know we're going to run huge deficits. When do we ever say no? Never. So... We could say, hey, the federal government's got this right. That means us. <laughs> and that's just, that's layering on to our $34 trillion of debt. It's producing $2 trillion of deficit. On the other hand, the other 40 states are getting their share. They're pulling that money down. And we're not. It's about a billion and a half that would come from the federal government. But the main reason to oppose it is that, in my view, we ain't got the money. I want to be consistent with that. And every time I hear somebody say, well, we shouldn't be sending all that money to Ukraine, I'm with them. I heard somebody say this morning uh, in a town hall format, I think it was on Fox News, you know how they, they send yeah. Lawrence Jones out in the field. He's in South Carolina because they got their, their big primary tomorrow, and he's asking the people, well, I just, I'm mad about sending that money to Ukraine. We should be using that to m- build the wall. Okay, I'm with them, except it's not an either-or. We're not building the wall b- because of the money. We're building the wall because the Congress won't pass the law to build the wall. It's fifteen to eighteen billion dollars. That's peanuts in a six trillion dollar budget. That's a rounding error. That's not even pocket change. That's not the reason. The reason we're not build, building the wall is because the Democrats won't vote to build it, and they own the government from a voting perspective, from a passing of laws perspective. They control it. They got the White House. They got the, and it requires, by the way, sixty votes in the Senate. Yeah, so not gonna happen. Yeah, go happen. Um, so. It's not an either-or. It's not a, well, if we didn't send all that money to Ukraine, and I've heard people say all these things they want to use that money on, well, before you know it, it'd be $5 trillion for the $100 billion sent to Ukraine. We don't, no, we don't have it. And that doesn't enter into the equation, just like Medicaid expansion in the 40 states. Nobody says, we don't have the money in the federal government. We can't send you that money this year. No, we just print it. And then the taxpayers say, well, I don't want to pay for that. You're actually not. Taxpayers uniquely are not. Because remember, only only half the households in the country pay taxes. The other half pay no federal income taxes. They're not paying taxes. That's not how they're harmed. How they're harmed is inflation. Because when we're printing money and borrowing money to cover the $2 trillion deficit, that is inherently inflationary. And that, by the way, is... Econ- economics 101. 
That's easy to figure out, just like it was in 2020 when we were signing off on all these CARES Act and all those bills, about five freaking trillion dollars for COVID, and then Joe Biden takes office and he layers on another $1.9 trillion, and then we get the CHIPS Act at $1.2 trillion or whatever it is, $500 billion, and then the Infrastructure Act at $1.2 trillion, and then the Omnibus Bill at $1.7 First thing you know, that's real money there, not... 18 billion to build a wall that's a rounding error two trillion that's a bunch of money so that's the reason if there is a a main one in my view i would say it's that on the other hand the other 40 states don't care they just say well i don't care if the federal government's printing money how how many people do you hear in our own state that say we got to elect so-and-so to send them to congress because they got to bring that money home to mississippi all the time right seniority they i want somebody that's got seniority control it's going to be a committee chair that's great just to understand every penny they send home is going to the deficit and the debt because the amount of taxes we spend we send as a nation only covers social security medicare medicaid other government assistance programs and debt interest everything else is deficit we don't fund a dime of that. Your taxes don't cover the military. They don't cover all the other Byzantine federal bureaucracy. We only send enough money to cover those programs. That's where we are fiscally in this country right now. That's where it is. So adding that billion, billion and a half dollars a year that the federal government would use to fund additional Medicaid in the state of Mississippi, it's deficit spending. Every dime they spend is deficit spending. None of it's covered. So this idea that your taxes are covering that, no. Your taxes don't cover the deficit. That's why it's a deficit, because we don't pay enough. Now, that's a different argument. I think we pay plenty. The problem is we spend too dang much. You know what Ronald Reagan said 50 years ago? But when you start talking about, okay, well, what do you want to cut? And everybody gets... Well, we just got to stop the radical spending. But what exactly? You can't get a straight answer on that because it's complicated. I'm not. I'm not trying it to be disrespectful. It's very painful. Somebody's going in. in You're going to lose a vote over it. That's exactly right. No matter what you say, somebody's going to be mad. And when we come back, I'm going to make an interesting contrast on another fiscal challenge spending potential spending challenge we have in the state of mississippi we're coming right back once again in the element well studio it's multimedia journalist kelly bennett at 11 20 representative dana mclean at 1205 Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
We are back in the Element Well studio. So on the ceasefire text line, can we get an idea of how much money a trillion dollars is? Like the waiter size? Yeah. Uh, 630,000 mid-sized cars or 2.2 billion pounds. There you go. <laughs> because it's all on paper, we don't, we don't really have that many physical dollars, I don't think. I don't, I don't know how much physical uh, currency is in circulation. Don't they like sometimes print like a billion dollar bill or something to pay off. You know, uh, sometimes yeah, do that. a plat. No, they've talked about uh, a platinum coin, which is uh, kind of a joke uh, because that's making up valuations, honestly. But before we went to break, of course, a, a concern, a legitimate concern of opponents is, well, this is going to cost the state. I mean, you are you're adding to the state's cost potentially. And most estimates peg that at anywhere between 130 and 170 million dollars a year. Absolutely legitimate concern. You're adding spending, adding cost. Okay, fair enough. To to uh, extend health insurance to the uninsured population that meets the eligibility requirements. All right. Now let's talk about PERS. The taxpayers of the state of Mississippi are on the hook, technically, to cover the PERS unfunded liabilities. The reality is, if they wanted to stabilize, if the legislature is serious about stabilizing the fund, that's in the 250 to $300 million range for several years. It's way more expensive than Medicaid to pay the retirement of people who work for the state. I'm not saying, don't go run around saying, Gerard says I'm not entitled to my retirement. Quite the opposite. What I have said many times on the program is if the state somehow defaults on that obligation, that the members of PERS will own the state of Mississippi. Whatever assets Mississippi has, 16th section lands, property and buildings, they'll be owned by PERS. If if we don't make good... Have a little sale, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you don't you don't pay... Your house, and you're foreclosed on. Who owns it then? The lender, the bank, right? Mm-hmm. Same on your vehicle or any other major purpose, any chattel mortgage, or, or it, which would be like a vehicle or furniture or something like that, some installment loan, and you default. The security is those assets. They have the right. It says so in the fine print, in the contracts. We have the right to come essentially seize these assets from you to, uh, to pay the debt you owe us. Same thing here. Same thing here. It's going to happen with PERS. So we got that staring us in the face. We got this possibility of Medicaid expansion staring us in the face. We got the Department of Transportation says, hey, if you guys want to build new roads and and you want to keep the, uh, the roads we have in tip-top shape, we need more money. And so they're looking for, uh, Commissioner Simmons was on the program last week, he's looking for a recurring revenue stream and, and executive director Brad White said the same because the federal government, once again, to get that matching money from the federal government for a Department of Transportation, especially new capacity projects, you got to prove to the federal government you have a stream of revenue to maintain these roads and bridges after we give you money to build them. Because that's expensive, as you know. Maintenance is. 
And you've got to prove to the government, okay, we got that, the federal government, we got that covered. So what they're proposing is a carve-out of like the use tax that goes to the general fund. Let's just send that to the Department of Transportation, some percentage of it, a couple hundred million bucks a year or something like that, uh, I think is what they're proposing. So you see the conundrum, though. It's always the case. You got lots of asks from uh, people. And, and in this case, the Department of Transportation, and, and I'm not being critical of them. They're getting beat up by the people saying, man, we need these roads, we need these bridges. And if you're going to grow the economy of the state, yeah, that means you, you yeah. need more capacity. Meanwhile, cars are becoming much more fuel efficient, so they're paying less. Less in taxes, yeah. So which is their, uh, a big source of their revenue is the f- excise tax on, on uh, gallons of fuel. It's per gallon. So lots of complicated stuff, of course, going on. All I want the legislature to do is have all the data. And I think there's more data that should be collected to inform uh, this decision. Uh, you know how many people in the state of Mississippi even know about the ACA exchanges and the, and the free premiums, the zero-cost premiums, as a result of the American Rescue Plan in 21 and then made more permanent by the Inflation Reduction Act? Now, the reason that's not a perfect substitute from a cost perspective for Medicaid expansion just to the, to the end user, to the subscriber, is because you still have an out-of-pocket component deductible, copay, coinsurance, it's limited to $3,450 a year if you're in the income range that would also make you eligible for Medicaid. So sign up in the ACA, zero-cost premium, but a $3,450 a year out-of-pocket. Sign up for Medicaid, zero. Now, the Mississippi Hospital Association, by the way, did present their plan, Mississippi CARES plan, I think. That's something they presented in 2019, in an effort to expand Medicaid. And that uh, presentation was made, again, uh, quite effectively by Dr. Uh, Kim Hoover, that's now the, I believe, serving as the CEO, COO of Mississippi Hospital Association. So their proposal is seek a waiver that would require this expansion coverage group to pay $20 a month as a premium. That's modeled after what Mike Pence did did in Indiana, by the way. Done through a waiver. Have to get a waiver on that. That's not in the standard Medicaid program under the regulations promulgated at the federal level. So it's a $20 a month. Now, you can do the math on that. I believe that's $48 million if 200,000 people a year sign up to go towards the 150 that the state would pay, right? Mm-hmm. So you see how complicated all this gets when you think about all, all these absolutely all these adjustments and amendments and ideas, which is good. That's what that's what ought to be happening is creative people ought to be in a room thinking about ways to um, address this issue. But what you're saying is, and what you and I were talking about during the commercial break is, you got to have more information. I think you do. You don't go out there and buy a house without looking at what school district it's in, what's Correct. your mortgage interest payment going to be, what's your commute going to be to work. You know, you got to look at all these kind of things. Right. Yeah, there's just a lot more data. Like, you at least need to know if you're thinking about signing up for a, for a permanent cost to the state of Mississippi, you at least need to have as much information as you possibly can obtain to estimate your risk. 
So if you don't know and have better information about how many people are going to jump on this thing and sign up, yeah, then you're. I mean, there's some other inputs that are being used by organizations such as the Hilltop Institute that presented on Tuesday, such as the Mississippi Hospital Association, such as the State Economist, such as uh, just others uh, in the industry. But still, I think there's more money to be collected because you're not assuaging the concerns of the opponents who say we could have what's called the woodwork effect where all these people that are enrolled in their private coverage jump on to Medicaid. All these people in the ACA jump on to Medicaid. And they could be right. But if, if you want to uh, essentially refute that, you need some data. Now, I know for a fact that the maximum number of people that could jump from the ACA, and by the way, the way the federal government works is once you expand Medicaid, and if somebody goes on to the ACA um, healthcare.gov portal site where you can go search for insurance and subsidies and all that stuff, once it, it goes through some series of questions ask you for your income, once it's learned that your income is such that you're eligible for Medicaid in an expansion state, it sends you to Medicaid. And you know why it does that? Because it's less money for the taxpayers to fund them on Medicaid than it is on the exchanges to subsidize their I private see. coverage. On the other hand, though, the providers get reimbursed less under Medicaid than they do the private coverage. See the problem? And then there's another piece to this as well, which is the federal government has a program, Disproportionate Share Payments, DISH Payments for short. And basically... It it provides funding monies to hospitals based on having an outsized amount of uncompensated and Medicaid care. Here's some money just for taking care of that, because we know you're upside down on the uncompensated and on the Medicaid. Actually, Medicare, too, to be honest with you. It's below cost. And so that's been steadily reduced through the years, this was a big thing, by the way, during the Barber administration, because that's when it first hit. But you have to you have to take that out. If you're going to have more people, you see what I'm saying, that are that are going from uncompensated yeah. to Medicaid, well, your dish payments are going to go down. So that's got to be figured into the math. Which is, by the way, what they did um, in the reform waiver we got in September. That had to be considered as well. There was a little bit of dish adjustments as a result of that. It's an, it's an accounting exercise. By the way, you know where the vast majority of the regulations concerning health care at the federal level reside? The IRS code. It's not, not health care. It's accounting. It's a series of debits and credits. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming back in the Element Well studio. At Clinton 7.3. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are in the Element Well studio. So suffice it to say, it's an incredibly complicated subject, and every time you think you've sort of covered all of the all of the factors, it just seems like more crop up. Honestly, <laughs> and and you know, I, I know that the legislature's got a million things they're dealing with, and uh, but. There's no other issue that um, I guess has as much money, just dollars associated with it, than this. And once you implement it, it's relatively permanent. I mean, if I think it's safe to say it is permanent. Now, I'll tell you this, Will. When I first got interested in this subject, which is really what sparked my interest in politics, I know I've told the story before. It's 2008, and that was after reading Barack Obama's plan which is, is folks that were around then and tracking politics know that that was, that was their marquee issue, that they were going to get something done with respect to sweeping, big, significant health care reform. What they got was the Affordable Care Act, which, so you'll know, is a very watered-down version of what they want. They couldn't get it what they wanted through, and that largely is because Senator Ted Kennedy passed away untimely and. um December of 2009, he was replaced in a special election by Senator Scott Brown, a Republican. And it was largely because Massachusetts, deep blue Massachusetts, didn't want the federal government to pass what they were proposing for health care reform. But when I called my lawyer and I said, man, I'm looking at this thing, and based on what they want us employers to do, that's going to cost me significantly, my company significantly, and my lawyer said, it was Pepper. He was on two days ago. He remembers this conversation back in 2008. And he said, Gerard, wait, wait, slow down. First, this guy's got to get elected, candidate Barack Obama. Second, this law, this bill has to pass. What he wants to do has to pass. Third, you know it's going to get challenged at the Supreme Court. And it's likely to be struck down. And fourth, the, it has to be codified and the rules promulgated. Because what I was asking him was questions that you couldn't tell from reading his plan. The bill hadn't even been drafted yet. This was 2008, right? So um, I said, well, here's what I think, Pepper. (laughs) I think this guy's going to get elected. I think this bill's going to pass. I think the Supreme Court's going to uphold it. And I think it's going to be permanent, never going away. Where was I wrong? Across the board. Now, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. It's just, man, you're trying to make business decisions, and you need the, all the inputs. That's the point. And at that point, I was trying to at least, worst-case scenario, handicap the risk. And that's what what I did. I said, I'm assuming it's going to pass. This guy's going to get elected. It's going to pass. Supreme Court is going to go uphold it. Um, we're going to see it codified, and it's going to be permanent. It ain't ever going away. By the way, the ACA exchanges, which were a big component of the Affordable Care Act, because it provides subsidized coverage, private coverage based on your income, mm-hmm. just had record enrollment of 20 million. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot when you think about a population of 330 million. But the first, uh, historically, it's been in the 10 to 15, 20 million. And that's largely because. You've got this, these enhanced subsidies, and I've suggested this to the state 
as an option to Medicaid expansion. I said so in my article. Why don't we seek a waiver? We got a better chance of getting a waiver for the federal government to help us pay the cost, take Medicaid dollars and pay the cost of the out-of-pocket figures, the cost that those in the exchanges would bear that are also eligible should the state expand Medicaid because their premiums are free already by law. Get a waiver to cover that 3450. And by the way, the 3450 is only realized if you actually hit it. I mean, you've got the coverage and you're using you're receiving patient care that adds up to your deductible. Most people, unless they have something more catastrophic in nature, don't use all their deductible. Yeah. Which which by the way, standard limit on deductible for an individual is 9500 or 9800 this year i think it went up and for um the individual and spouse and family i think it's 18000 bucks that means you're out of pocket 18000 bucks with your insurer for a family most people can't can't afford that and i'm hearing from my physician friends hospital administrators they're seeing an, uh, a significant uptick in default on patient responsibility. Even though it's a private coverage where the insurer's paying for their share and the patient responsibility, most people are familiar with that bill you get, patient responsibility and the explanation of benefits, they're just not paying for it. Walking away. Crazy. Hmm. I know. Fox News, Super Talk News is next. I think I got that wrong in the last segment. I was confused on what segment we're on. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's Kelly Bennett at 1120. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is now live from the Element Well studio on this Friday, y'all. We thank you so much for joining us. We're looking forward to a uh, what appears to be a delightful weather weekend. Yes. Uh, there, Will. So, speaking of a little journey bumping us in, as is always the case, at the top of the hour, I follow the boys. You know, they're on tour. Started out in Biloxi and surely enjoyed seeing them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, of course I keep following them. I think they were in Rochester, New York, last night. Providence, Rhode Island, earlier in the week, selling out everywhere. They are. It's a lot yeah. of fun watching all that. So on the ceasefire text line, um, we had a question. Let's see here, uh, Rhino. Oh yeah, my uh, pardon me, Will. <laughs> um, thoughts on uh, there was Chad Van Cleve. Wanted to know about uh, Roger Wicker, Senator Roger, Roger Wicker, and where he stood on the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. That was passed in the law of 2010. No senators, no Republican senators voted for it. It's pretty much on partisan lines. Yeah, it was like 60-39, something like that. I believe one, there was one senator, and I can't remember if it was a Republican or a Democrat now. I think uh, it was one Republican that didn't, didn't vote. vote. That's right. 
and I can't remember the reason why. Uh, it was Jim Bunning. He didn't vote. So, but and then of course, there there's a bit of a of a misconception, some misinformation about so-called repeal. Because if you remember in 2016, uh, the candidates for president on the Republican side. We're going to repeal Obamacare, right? We had candidates in the state running for U.S. Senate. Uh, I distinctly remember candidate Senator Ted Cruz. He started every speech with, we're going to repeal every single word of Obamacare. Ah, Remember that? Mm -hmm. Every single speech began with that. And I'm always thinking to myself, "Uh, no, you're not. No, you're not, Senator. (laughs) That may be a noble goal if you want to. Okay, so there was a bill. In 2017, there were actually numerous bills yeah. offered in 2017, and they're they're largely considered to be full repeal. Not true. They were what's called skinny repeal, which would just really sought to adjust some of the provisions. And most people remember John McCain in the Senate. Remember with a thumbs down, he was the deciding vote, and it was for him. It was political. You know, he wasn't friends with Trump. Trump wanted to pass this legislation. I actually wrote an article back then, 2017, where I took all the plans offered. There's like six of them that would have sort of adjusted Obamacare and went into all these details about each major provision. Here's what folks need to understand. That was not full repeal. Get that out of your head. It wasn't just wipe that thing off the books. What they wanted to do was... In the requirement to have insurance or pay a penalty, the so-called individual mandate. Well, well, President Trump did that via executive order. Remember that? Um, not too long after that. So that doesn't even exist. The other thing was there were some adjustments with respect to the insurance reforms, especially in the group market, to allow so-called association plans. So one of the issues is if you buy your insurance on the individual market, not through your employer, you don't get the tax benefits, the pre-tax treatment of those premiums that you do in the group plan. That's a disparity I've been crusading to fix for, seems like, 15 years, since I got involved in this subject back in 2006. Why is that? Why Why isn't, I'm in, let's say I'm in, um, uh, independent contractor, and I buy my insurance through the uh, the individual market. Well, I don't get the same tax benefits as somebody buying their insurance through their employer. That's not. I think that's not right. That's inequitable. And but that was one of the things they were trying to fix. But you know this, Will. You've heard him, have you not? Donald Trump, other Republicans say we will always protect. Donald Trump says it all the time. We will always protect pre-existing conditions. You hear that all the time. That's a that's a, a hot topic in insurance because people don't want to get turned down if they got yeah. pre existing condition. Well, there's a nuance there. That's not been uh, available in the group market. That's been prohibited in the group market since '96. It's only in the individual market. Well, the Affordable Care Act. What changed that? It's Obamacare. So Republicans are essentially praising a provision of Obamacare. And then there's some other things that Obamacare did that most people would say, yeah, I like that. There's there's a limit on annual out-of-pocket costs. Some policies before Obamacare, that you could buy policies with no limit. You, and then there were some policies that had a limit on lifetime out-of-pocket costs. Some didn't. Hey. So, so if you pass away... 
the costs are not incurred by your family? Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, it simply means that you can't buy a policy that says, hey, once you hit a certain number, a certain amount of um, of lifetime no, pardon me. The lifetime reimbursement from the insurer oh, says we're in for this much, and after that you're on your own. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Same on an annual. We're in for this much, and after that you're on your own. Well, that was all changed in Obamacare. Now, you know what that meant? The premiums went up. Okay, you want to? And I wrote an article on this like back in 2009, saying well, that all sounds great, but they're going to have to get their money somehow, and you're going to pay for it in your premiums. So all those reforms, most people, even on the right, say, "Yeah, I'm glad I have that." They don't know that that's Obamacare, but they also haven't thought about, well, yeah, but you're paying for that essentially. There's something else called community rating. You see how crazy this stuff gets? Community rating simply means that an insurer can charge more to a certain person, like a smoker, a woman, because they generally consume more health care. they got more parts. They get pregnant. Men can't, despite what the left says. So they could charge more, and there would be ratios. And so uh, of how much more they could charge than, a, let's say, an, an individual? Well, the Affordable Care Act limits that. Okay. Old people pay more than young people. It limits what that ratio can be. And the reason they did that was to hope that more young people would get in and pay for the old people. I mean, it's just a fact. Yeah. Um, it's things like that. Most people appreciate and support those reforms. Put it to those insurance companies. But you're paying for it. Okay, yeah, well, we're going up on your premiums. It's not like they're giving you anything there. But And then there's a limit, uh, the medical loss ratio, which says that 80% of the dollars they take in in premiums, they got to pay out. And if they don't, they got to send rebate checks out. And tens of billions of dollars of rebate checks have been issued by insurance companies in this, uh, in this country since that provision went into effect. If they don't do the 80-20. You know something else? So essentially the government limits their profit. It's what they do. Limits their profit. Uh, you can only deduct $500,000 of CEO pay. You may pay them $5 million, you can only deduct 500000 No other industry has this. It's you. If you want to know the truth, I know Thomas and Greenwood says, I don't want socialized medicine. We already have it. Yeah. We have had it for a long time because the government says, okay, insurance companies, here's how much money you can you can make. Here's what your policies have to look like. Here's how much you can deduct on your CEO pay. I mean, it, it is the most regulated from an economic perspective industry, perhaps, of all the others. And by the way, you hospitals out there since 1986 under Ronald Reagan, if you, if you take somebody in your ER, you got to stabilize them whether they pay or not. And stabilizing means it could be a $100,000 heart surgery, for example, to get them stable. They're experiencing a heart attack. You know where we expanded Medicaid the most ever? 2020. Donald Trump. A lot of people hadn't thought about this. The CARES Act. Remember that? $3.2 trillion. Had the PPP program and the stimulus checks and all that garbage in it. Well... The Trump administration said, look, we think people are going to be sick because of COVID, and we don't want them to lose their Medicaid coverage. You can't kick them off even if they no longer are eligible based on their pay. But we're going to give you states 6.2% more on the federal match for you to keep them on your rolls. That went on until last year. And by the way, the, what the law said was until the public health emergency is officially declared over by the president. 
That went on until last year, and they finally said, okay, looks like we're past this COVID thing. So three years that was in effect. Wow. Here's what happened to Medicaid. It went from 72 million people to 90. We had 90 million people on Medicaid. 90 million of the 330 in the country. The government last year says, okay, we're ending this 6.2%. By the way, you got to start disenrolling, de-enrolling people on Medicaid in your states that are no longer eligible. So now all the states are scrambling to redetermine, that's what they call it, redeterminations to see if the people that are enrolled still are eligible based on their pay. And they got to kick them off. And um, so far, uh, I think eight or nine million in the country have been kicked off. What a mess. We're taking a break right here. And next is Kelly Bennett, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. We're going to dig into some of the biggest headlines from across the state. I bet we'll talk about school choice a little bit. Coming right back. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. It's middays. We're live in the Element Well studio. We welcome now Kelly Bennett, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News. Good morning, y'all. Happy Friday. What I'm about so happy it? about the weather. Yeah, oh, it's Woo! cool. It's great. It's awesome. Uh, yes. We are deserving of it. It's been a while since we've had just some kind of moderate temperatures and sunny skies. But, yeah, much uh, much appreciated. Yeah, I, I've got some delphiniums I'm ready to plant this weekend. And I heard you recently, Gerard, talking yeah. to uh, the garden mama, yep. Nellie. Yep. I didn't know you knew so much about plants. Well, you know, I'll tell you, uh, Kelly, it's a hobby that I picked up. Back in the uh, the late nineties, and uh-huh. it, and it, um, I had moved into a new house this after my father passed away, and I um, I, I hired a landscaper, and he suggested uh, we had a kind of a big patio area to let a really really good group by the way to let uh, him plant up the pots with with annuals. It was the spring, and I said sure, and and I was so impressed with that, and and enjoyed that so much. I started just kind of learning from him, and then I just started studying to learn it myself. And then I found out, wow, this is great stress relief. 
And so I have yes. uh, outside lighting and uh, my my sound system. I've got a really cool sound system that just bathes the entire outside area. And I'm in a new house. It's got nice. a much bigger patio. So I love to plant and play in the dirt, just like not think about anything, you know, and stuff like that. And and just through the years of just kind of self-taught student, obviously not to the level of uh, the garden mama, but uh, I do enjoy no. that. I really yeah. do. It's just a hobby. It's fun. If if only we could all be as good as the garden. Oh yeah, right? exactly. We're fortunate to have her yeah. on the team. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of which, uh, the team of Mississippi here, it looks like the legislature is going to consider a couple of big uh, matters concerning public education. The first is the uh, change to the mm-hmm. Mississippi Adequate Education Program funding, the so-called MAEP funding. I reviewed both funding formulas to try to understand the the distinctions what are you hearing about that at this point (laughs) i did too i'm still trying to figure out the distinctions but basically i can tell you this lawmakers in the house are working on a total rewrite of the mississippi adequate education uh, program funding formula now house speaker jason white told us on monday the legislation would scrap the current formula it will go to a more student-based student-weighted um, funding formula. And right. of course, House Education Committee Chair Rob Robertson says this formula has been notoriously hard to understand. I think a lot of lawmakers would agree on that. It's ridiculous to me that, that I cannot explain you to you the current formula. Uh, and, and I don't claim to be the smartest person in the world, but goodness knows um, this should not be that hard to explain. But Thursday, Senator Bryce Wiggins expressed concerns that repealing the formula would result in public school districts lobbying for funds. So basically, the Senate bill includes some revisions, but it's not a complete rewrite. And the House bill is, you know, let's throw out MAEP and start over. Yeah, we'll see where that goes. I mean, I know this is something they've wanted to do for a while. And the MAEP formula is complicated, but I'll tell you, this new Inspire formula, it's not easy either. I mean, but it, it can't be. It's it's um, the matter itself. It's kind of like all this healthcare stuff I've been talking about. When you start digging into all the yes. numbers and the computations and, and all the cause and effect stuff, uh, it can be complicated. Just gathering the information, you know, at the district level can be uh, a bit tedious. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah, and there are 145 school districts in the school. I mean, that's a that's a lot to consider. Yeah, two counties. And I I think the talk has been for some time that we should get serious about possible consolidation of some districts where it makes sense to do so, and eliminate mm-hmm. some of the duplicative administrative uh, back office costs. And um, I, I think I, I was more surprised, Gerard, that they're actually considering school choice issues this year. I did that. not really yeah. anticipate that coming up. There's a bill. There are actually three education bills right now being considered, I believe. But this one uh, would give every child in our state a choice in how and where they go to school. Yep. Uh, it's House Bill 1449. And Douglas Carswell with the Mississippi Center for Public Policy told us this one is modeled after a program that's actually working in Arkansas. Sarah Huckabee Saunders on the other side of the river has introduced this wonderful new scheme that gives every single child in Arkansas the right to have a personalized account into which the state puts public money 
um, worth about eight to nine thousand dollars a year, and they can then redeem that, spend that at a school of their choice, public, private, or, or, or whatever. Now, as is the case with a lot of legislation, they want to phase this in slowly. So what their plan is, is to start with low-income students and then advance year by year to cover more and more students until every child would have the option of what they're calling a Magnolia scholarship account by the 2029 to 2030 school year. Yeah, it's five-year phase-in, in which to, at which point uh, it would be so-called universal eligibility, which means everybody would have control over the state funds that are earmarked for their student for education. That's um, that, that's the goal uh, with this particular bill. That's what exists in Florida and in Arizona, which probably have the most robust plans of all. So we'll see where that goes. You're I, right. I think I saw it. It's interesting that we're talking so much about education right now. I think I saw, I can't remember, was it a governor or it might have been Florida Governor DeSantis talking today about tax credits or homeschooling. So I wonder if those kind of things will come up in the future as well. Yeah, I thought they already had that. I mean, so universal school choice would include, again, the ability of uh, the, the student, their family, to, to choose the setting that they think best suits that student, which would include and extend to homeschooling as as well. That would be universal school choice. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, another big thing, another big shocker for me, was uh, the Parchman legislation that's being considered. You know, conditions at Parchman have improved since the DOJ released a report in 2022. They claim conditions at the state pen actually violated the constitutional rights of inmates. Senator Juan Barnett is the one behind this legislation. He authored a bill that would shut the facility down over the next four years. And so the best thing to do is not just fix a problem or patch on it to get us by today, but let's go in on and, and fix this thing and make it a permanent fix so that when they come back, they can say, hey, Mississippi did what Alabama should have done. And that's to move on before and make sure that we take care of these things versus being forced like Alabama to do with a billion dollar project that they're facing. He wants the state to consider building a new prison, which he wants done in the Delta. And that's important because this facility provides a lot of jobs for that area. Or he also said uh, possibly secure the Tallahatchie County Correctional Facility and make it the new state pen. Apparently, we have to have a state pen. That's by law. Yeah. He does want to keep a portion of Parchman open to house death row inmates and provide resources for inmates that... Are dealing with mental health issues. Yeah, and I actually read that bill, and and, and what it essentially does is it it just um, dictates to the commissioner of corrections to devise the plan, to orchestrate it, to manage it. I mean, the whole thing, and report to the legislature. So it essentially empowers the commissioner to take up this task. I was a little surprised when he said that he hadn't discussed this with the commissioner yet. Yeah, and MDOC has been really quiet about this legislation. So. Yeah, not sure where they stand. May, yeah. may make sense to get uh, Commissioner Kane on one of the programs and ask him. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure on this one either. Now, this one uh, could be pretty exciting. Gulfport could actually become the third city in Mississippi to install one of these safe haven baby boxes. 
These serve as a safe location for moms to drop off their children when they are unable to take care of them. And, of course, we've had Attorney General Lynn Fitch on earlier to explain that these safe havens are climate controlled. First responders are on hand and they're notified the minute a child is placed inside. And so these baby boxes are very specially designed. They can be at the fire stations. They could be at a number of places like that. And as soon as the baby is placed in there, alarms go off. Uh, physicians, uh, emergency medical staff are alerted and immediately go in and to get this child uh, and then get them to a uh, hospital and again being checked out. They want to locate this at the fire station on Dito Road. And I thought this one was interesting. A Gulfport resident, Gerald Sanchez, is donating the $24,000 for construction. Yeah. Uh, before you go, we got a couple of seconds. What about um, this male-female? You want to hang on and talk oh, about that in the next in the next segment? You want sure. to do that? All right, we let's do that. that. we got Kelly Bennett, multimedia journalist, Super Talk Mississippi News, coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbons on Super Talk Mississippi. back it's middays in the element well studio we're chatting with kelly bennett super talk mississippi news so uh one thing i want to follow up on because i did a little reading during the break is that um i i was right it does phase in i'm talking about school choice the the um what's that bill 1449 yeah hb 1449 it does which which does um purport to achieve so-called universal eligibility it phases in and i'm i'm reading directly for the law there's it's for the 2025 26 school year here's the eligibility requirements 26 27 here are the eligibility requirements then it says for 27 28 and every year thereafter any child who is eligible to enroll in public school is qualified to receive one of the magnolia scholarships so that means, yeah, okay. it, it, this way I read it is that means everybody would have essentially yeah, access yeah. to the funds that's allocated to their child. If they want to use that for private school, homeschool, whatever the case may be, including those who are okay. already in a private school because they're also eligible to enroll in a public school. That's what universal that's school point. choice is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. You have to really think those things through and when you're reading through these bills. No, no doubt. Brain no doubt. All right, so really go into high gear. Tell us about this bill, and I think we got, uh, well, I know we do. We've got Representative Dana McLean on the program later. Uh, I'm pretty sure that she is uh, the author or one of the authors of this bill that uh, defines uh, a female, right? Yeah, so our state has already banned, uh, barred transgender athletes from competing in women's sports. They did that in 2021. And then last year, they prohibited gender-affirming care. How ridiculous is it that we have to actually go in 
nuts <laughs> and define the difference between male and females. But this is House Concurrent Resolution 33, if right. anybody wants to look it up. It basically states that only women defined as biological females can get pregnant, give birth, and breastfeed children. This is really a bill that's being pushed forward to keep men out of women's spaces. And we're talking about uh, transgender. I'm, I'm going to say something politically wrong here. I don't mean to do that. Um, I'm just trying to think it through. So if you were formerly a male, now you're a female uh, and you go to prison. There have been a lot of cases where uh, transgender women have been raping other inmates. You know, there are issues with uh, transgender women in locker rooms doing things they shouldn't be doing, that kind of stuff. So this bill is basically right. designed to address that. Yep. Okay. Um, let's see. What about this uh, this gun modification legislation? I had a roundtable interview uh, earlier on the show. Uh, we're talking about Heck, I can't remember the name of whatever the device is. The Glock switch, that's what it is. Yeah. And and we had uh, <laughs> Representative Kevin Felcher, Senator Scott Delano, and uh, Donna Eccles on the program talking about that. What, what's the latest? So this legislation would ban the possession, sale, and manufacturing of firearm modifiers like Glock switches. This bill specifically named Glock switches. Uh it was passed unanimously by the House Judiciary B Committee. It was interesting because I listened to that roundtable and they were really big on, look, gun owners, it's okay. We're not coming after you, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but I was kind of surprised to find out how prevalent these Glock switches are. In crimes being perpetrated across the state. In fact, DPS Commissioner Sean Tendall told us they're already illegal on a federal level. One of the things that we routinely find when we we're making stops um, in the city of Jackson is these modified Glocks are showing up that have been yeah. uh, modified to have uh, the triggers switched so that they, they can fire in a fully automatic fashion. And for this, uh, creates some penalties for violations. It would be a felony. Carry a potential jail time of up to 10 years and a fine of up to $3,000. And then additional convictions could get someone 15 years in prison and up to 5000 in fines. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll see where that goes. I know there's there's some concerns, but i got to tell you that the sponsors of this thing on, on, on both cha- in both chambers, uh, Senator Delano and Representative Felsher, I, I think they feel pretty strongly about getting something done here. And I know law enforcement is uh, really pushing for this. See where that goes. The uh, the ballot initiative. I hadn't heard a lot about that. It, you know, it passed the House. It's been transmitted over to the Senate. I uh, A little birdie told me down there at the Capitol that we may see a Senate version of such a bill as well. I think we have a placeholder for perhaps for that right now. What are you hearing? Well, and, you know, you and I both know, Gerard, the reason the ballot initiative didn't go through in the last legislative session is because of differences between the House and Senate. And that could happen again. That could happen on the MAEP funding bill. I mean, it could happen on anything if they don't work it out as things progress. And, of course, uh, we're pretty early in the legislative session, wouldn't you say, at this point? So 
Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the the really kind of heavy lifting kicks into gear now that all the bills and so-called placeholders have been filed, and, and they start taking these things up uh, in earnest in committees, and then, um, you know, they transfer it across the hall there, and then have conferences where necessary. I think we have so many controversial measures. Controversial in that, I just doubt that um, some of these high-profile uh, issues uh, cross the hall there and just get rubber stamped. I, I think we're we're destined for conference on a lot of those. Well, and basically you've got the same signature issue coming up again, but you also have this time uh, some stipulations that are in there like voters can't make changes to the state's abortion laws and there are some other restrictions in there as well. And I've heard from some lawmakers who say, look, if you're going to have a ballot initiative, just have it. You can't, stip, you know, you can't stipulate which issues voters decide to bring yeah. to the forefront. Right. So, yeah, and I, we'll see. Right. And I, so um, I got a feeling we're going to see a Senate bill, and then I think they're going to get together and trade them across and see what they come up with. But th- this has been something they've tried to do since, as you know, the Supreme Court struck down Initiative 65 which uh, went to the ballot through the ballot measure process. And then, of course, that was challenged mm-hmm. by uh, Madison Mayor uh, Mary Hawkins Butler. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, there's a problem here. you got a technical problem. We really don't have a valid ballot measure process. And so um, I, I think we'll see something out of both houses. We already have one out of the House. We know about that. I think we'll see something uh, more specific out of the Senate, and they'll work it out between the two. Uh, all right, I so, agree. Yeah, what do you what do you uh, you you had a note here for me? The uh, Jackson trash fines. What's going on there, City of Jackson? Oh my goodness, uh, Jackson City leaders are facing some astronomical fines. This is for their failure to pick up residents' trash in April of 2023. You remember this big debacle, basically. The city council rejected Mayor Lumumba's choice of Richard's disposal for a long-term contract. Trash service stopped for like a month. I mean, do you remember people rounding up trucks and taking their own trash to the (laughs) landfills and that kind of stuff? Well, the State Department of Environmental Quality has issued fines of up to $900,000 for this fiasco. The city says they've been in negotiations to try to get that amount reduced. I hope they work out something soon because the current contract with the company expires March 31st. Now, Lamumba did say earlier this week a garbage company has been selected. He refused to name them during a press conference Tuesday that he wants to discuss it with the council before making an official announcement. That sounds like a pretty smart move. I got to tell you, I remember uh, this exercise you just described of having to load your trash up and take it to the dump when I was a kid, like 10, 12 years old. It had, had a similar issue, some sort of strike by the by the workers in the city of Jackson. Back then, the city of Jackson didn't contract it out. And I remember having to go down to the landfill in Byram in South Hines County. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so. I thought you were going to tell me you lived out in the county and had to do your own trash. No, or something. <laughs> no, I actually lived. I miss you. It lived in the city limits over in in West Jackson at the time. When my parents moved there in 1953, it was not in the city, but it was the city limits were extended oh. and it uh, was incorporated. I didn't realize when would this be, Gerard? 60s. 70s, this 80s? would have been the 60s. 60s? Uh, yeah, I'm going to guess it was Crazy. the 60s. I just think I remember, and I remember uh, hopping in the car with my, my parents. We didn't have trucks and station wagons and stuff back. They just put it in the trunk 
You didn't have the plastic trash bags like you do today, honestly. You didn't have all that stuff. I don't remember what we used, but back then you just put it in the can. I think we were putting it in grocery bags or something, taking it down to the dump. I'm reminiscing. I know that's not pertinent to this particular bill, but it's a similar squabble going on that causes uh, folks to have to deal with this on their own. Um, it just seems this like is just one of those issues that you would think your city leaders would have this one worked out because it literally stinks it's, when it, this situation had worked out. It's constant, though, isn't it? It seems like we have trouble getting contracts consummated in the city of Jackson. I wonder why. Now, i got to tell you before we go, uh, for the benefit of the audience, I've been crusading on the procurement laws in the state of Mississippi, the procurement statutes, which I think need major overhaul, probably 25 years. And uh, this is an example, honestly. And you see exactly what yeah. happens. And I could go yeah, on and on then. and on about that. Kelly, always good to see you. Thanks for the great update. Appreciate it. Thanks, y'all. Have a great weekend. You too. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. of distinction. I think it's the friends of distinction. Right? The, the friends? The. Oh, the friends, the yes. The friends of distinction. Name another song that they had. Um, if you can do it, I'll give you a dollar. Okay. I can tell you because I actually like it and I have it on my, <laughs> my songs list. And we'll have to play it. Of course it. you do. I, um, love or Let Me Be Lonely. Love or Let Me... I have to look that one look up. Look it up. And um, I can't remember. There's, As I recall, there. Two females and two uh-huh. males, I think, in the group. Mm-hmm. One of the females has a really distinctive voice, and she's the lead singer on that. And I, I don't know. I just I love her voice. It's awesome. Love her. Let me be lonely. I have to look that we, we can play it, man. It um, and there's a great video of them performing it that I've watched from time to time because I, I like to watch when I'm working at the house with the screens up, writing stuff. I like to have the YouTube on one of them, and it uh, you know it'll play a lot of your Mm-hmm. Your songs, but I can't remember their names. I just remember these two males, two females, Let's and "Love or Let Me Be Lonely" here. was a big one. There you go. Oh, I think I have heard. That's a female. That's a female. That's a female. In her voice, awesome. Yeah. I like the way she does that. Wait. It's Friday. We're having a little fun. When she do that again, back it up. Yeah, 
love when she does that. <laughs> the human voice, man. It's awesome. The friends of distinction. The friends of distinction. But this is a 60s band, so you have like names like that for bands, right? The friend, you know, you know what I was listening to on the way in here. What's that? I had it on my phone. It was uh, the Chamberlain Brothers. Yeah, it's from Mississippi, by the way. Right, they're from Oklahoma. I didn't know that. And it was uh, Time. Oh yeah. And I guess I'd pulled up the wrong one. I didn't pull up the single version. I pulled up the album version. And this is something people don't do anymore. But the album version is like twelve minutes long. <laughs> And I, I always loved that song. Not the, the intro is great, and it's one of those songs that you see on like documentaries when they're talking about the '60s and '70s and stuff. You know, time. You know, yeah, whole, yeah. But the the best thing about that song is the and again, nobody does this anymore. Is the end of it where the guy goes, "Which <laughs> one of those in there?" <laughs> I love it. Well. The friends of distinct. So you didn't know that was a female until I told you. She, I did she's not. obviously got a low voice, and she's a very attractive lady. But uh, I mean, and she, and if you watch the video of them performing that, they're just having so much fun, you know, singing it. Had had the mod kind of clothes on <laughs> with the Jessica big Cleves. Okay, there from you California go. passed away back in 2014. Okay, uh, yeah, she that. she was a member of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow, there you go. Man, well, that's cool. Well, it's a good tune. Appreciate you digging it up for yeah. us there. So let's see. Uh, oh, Argo and Blue Spring says you owe me a dollar. <laughs> I do. I got you. I got to get you a dollar. <laughs> uh, didn't Art Bell play this sometimes back in the nineties? I don't know. Probably did. That's you Thompson know, Greenwood, by the if way. If you listen to Super Talk Mississippi late at night as, on the weekends on Saturday. And Sundays, when there's not a ball game going on, you hear uh, a little program we have uh, called Somewhere in Time, and it has Art Bell on there. And it's some of the best entertainment you will get because they go back in the archives and they grab stuff. I was listening to one the other day, Gerard, or the other night, I should say, and they were talking to a time traveler, a guy who claimed he traveled across the cosmos to come back in time. And yeah. he was predicting all this stuff that was going to happen. You know, of course, none of it ever did. Uh, this is probably in the 90s. And in the middle of the broadcast, it shuts off. Okay. And Art Bell was like, ladies and gentlemen, we've lost him. <laughs> we don't know if it's gov- you know, the government. You know, all this kind of stuff. It's great entertainment. Oh, man. Uh, I should also pass on to you that, uh, so I said I thought we'd get some Senate legislation. I felt like we probably already had because the deadline's passed. I just haven't been uh, paying attention to it very closely. I've been kind of focused on this health care stuff. And what we're talking about is the ballot measure. Okay, so uh, Secretary of State Michael Watson sent me a text to let me know, yeah, there's a concurrent resolution and I think a bill as well that deals with it. Uh, and Representative Price Wallace also just sent me the same uh, SC527. So I'll dig into that and see what Senate thinks about a ballot measure because uh, I, f- I feel like we're probably still got a bit of a gap between <laughs> between the halls about as wide as the distance between the chambers in the hall. Well, it is top of the hour. That means Fox News, Super Talk News, the Friends of Distinction there bumping us out. When we come back, Representative Dana McLean, stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines. 
and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays, Hour 3. The afternoon portion of the program is now live from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday, y'all. As Rhino would say, we'll east in for the vacationing Rhino, but we welcome now Representative Dana McLean, represents a District 39, which incorporates Lowndes and Monroe counties. Representative McLean, good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Good to see you, too, Gerard. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I know you've been working on uh, quite a bit of uh, legislation. I've got kind of an update from you there. Talk about HB 1607. How about starting with that one? That's uh, a Mississippi Women's Bill of Rights bill. Sure. Um, this one is uh, we've, we've termed it the Mississippi Women's Bill of Rights. And what it does, it goes through the definitions for male and female, girl and boy, mother and father. You know, most of these definitions uh, are are pretty self-explanatory, and most of us know what male and female means. But, you know, we've had some inconsistency in court rulings, you know, all over the United States. And so we just want to spell it out and make sure that – in, in our code, we have the correct definition. Uh, Representative McLean, is this necessary because there there's certain uh, laws or, or regulations or, or something of the sort that explicitly references males, females, boys, girls, and, and we need to make sure that we know exactly who it, those uh, those laws apply to because of that. So we have to define it. Exactly. You know, when we're talking about high school athletics and we have girls' teams, we have boys' teams, you know, we want to make sure that that we're referring to biological females, biological males. Um, You know, when we have a Supreme Court justice that can't define what a woman is, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to spell it out, but that's the day that we live in now, and uh, we need to do that. And also, this will allow us to, if we need to uh, have separate uh, housing or separate athletic spaces, uh, social spaces, to allow for separation between males and females, uh, this will be allowed as well. I assume prisons would, uh, as well, this would apply to? It could. Okay. I mean, so domestic violence shelters, for sure. instance. I mean, there there are numerous areas where where, as we know, males and females need to be uh, separate. Who would have ever thought we'd have to do this? Honestly, that we even have to consume our our legislative cycles. It, to me, is insane, but I, I pre- certainly appreciate the uh, the need, and uh, there are folks in this country that are going in the other direction on this and want it to be totally based on how one identifies, and that, of course, triggers all sorts of problems, as we have witnessed across the nation. Right. Okay, so uh, something that's gotten a lot of, of attention in uh, the last couple of days is this legislation over in, uh, over in Alabama. Right, concerning IVF, 
uh, in vitro fertilization, embryos, and so forth. I mean, this is kind of right. medical science. Uh, I haven't studied that carefully, but do we have something going on here in the state of Mississippi that you're proposing from a legislative perspective pertaining to this issue? Well, I, I do, actually. It doesn't, it's not the same issue that Alabama is dealing with okay. uh, right now, but, but it does concern IVF. Um, I have a bill, and uh, this is the fifth year that I've dropped a bill, and I have a constituent who uh, she and her husband uh, went to a fertility clinic right before he went and had chemo and radiation uh, for a brain tumor. And so they could preserve his uh, sperm so they could have embryos and have children after his treatments were were over. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he passed away. And a year or two later, she decided she wanted to have a child. They didn't have children at the time. And so she used one of the embryos. And through IVF, assisted reproduction, she now has a five-year-old child. Hmm. However, our state does not recognize a child that was conceived after the death of a parent. The decedent in this case was her father. Um, When she went to file for Social Security benefits, uh, with children who have a parent that's deceased, you're able to draw that parent's Social Security benefits until your age of majority. Uh, this child is not considered a legitimate heir or even a legitimate child of her father, even though biologically she is. Uh, she has his DNA. Um, but we do not, in this statute, even though this concerns federal benefits, Social Security, of course, is federal, this is goes to the state. So the federal government looks to what does your state indicate an heir or a, a child of a parent. And so this is under our intestate statute, and we need to finally amend this. Gotcha. Um, of course, many of our, our laws were made years ago um, before the advent of certain technology or science. And uh, so that's what we're dealing with here. Okay. All right. But you said you, you've um, you filed such a bill before, and it obviously hasn't passed. Do, do you're more optimistic this year about this? Well, I'm hopeful. Um, we actually passed it the last two years in the House. Okay. Um, and it's, it's getting held up in the Senate. Um, believe the reasoning is <clears throat> this is, has to do with a probate proceeding. Oh. And if there is a notice requirement uh, that you would indicate to the uh, person that is the administrator of the estate that you intend to use the genetic material, then you would have an, a period of time in order to go through IVF and, and have this. And so that would that would uh, stay a probate proceeding. So those other heirs that could be out there would need to wait until this other heir was actually born and uh, was able to uh, receive benefits. Gotcha. Let's talk about uh, this HB 1536, a therapist, concerning therapists. What's going on there? Well, we do have... uh, we have regulations that will <clears throat> help 
prevent those who are actually in a position of trust from taking advantage of uh, someone, uh, say, sexually. So, But we do not have that for therapists. Um, according to um, the, the research that I've done, uh, the only... Um, the only laws that we have are through their uh, licensure. So they would actually lose their license if they had sex with, say, a patient. Okay. But there are no criminal uh, penalties. And so what this, this bill does, Bill 1536, would add therapists to the list of those who would be uh, subject to a penalty of a felony. If they if they have sex and it's any sexual contact, not just intercourse, but any sexual uh, contact whatsoever with the patient, um, usually these patients are very vulnerable. They come to their therapist because they have emotional issues, or they're 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 needing um, they're needing someone to advise them, and then for a therapist to take advantage of that person as uh, something that we really need to regulate and make sure that this is a crime. Gotcha. Uh, last week, there there was uh, some uh, media coverage about a therapist in Hattiesburg who had been actually uh, having sex with some of his patients. He was a religious person with a Christian therapy group, I believe, and so, at this point, there are there are no criminal charges that can be brought against this therapist. Wow. Okay, sure. So, all right, let's move on. HB fifteen thirty five midwifery bill. That's interesting. Right. We have we have a, a number of midwives in the state. Some have gone through training. Some have not. Um, and, of course, those that have gone through training uh, are advocating that other midwives who hold themselves out as midwives should also be subject to uh, regulation and training and all of that. At this point, the, through the Department of Health, we do not have um, any licensure requirements or certifications. We don't have a midwifery, a state midwifery board. And uh, you know we have these um, we have these areas where we're losing obstetrics. Hospitals are no longer having their delivery rooms, and um, so midwifery is, is is an option for moms that uh, are at low you. risk. And uh, so this bill we dropped it last year really didn't get any. Representative McLean, let's take a break right here. We'll come back and continue this discussion. Thank you. Hey, this is Bob, and if you interrupt this program, Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge, huge, huge news. Huge, huge, huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk, Mississippi. Clark. 
Parker on the lead vocals with the Hollies. We're back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Representative Dana McLean. You've been busy there, Representative McLean, uh, working on all this legislation for sure. So uh, let's move forward, if we can, to HB 1380 concerning child abuse. Let's see, babies born who test positive for controlled substances. Uh, what are you thinking there? Well, um, this just adds another definition for child abuse uh, with, within the code. It adds uh, for those that um, have a baby and the baby tests positive for controlled substances that are not prescribed by a physician. Um, okay. You know, these, these babies end up suffering so much when they are addicted to drugs or have fetal alcohol syndrome. Of course, this does not cover fetal alcohol, but it does cover uh, those that, that babies that test positive for controlled substances at birth. And, uh, you know, a lot of these babies end up in the neonatal, um, and they are, uh, they've been subjected to child abuse, yeah. really, in the womb. And so this creates a felony charge for those mothers, um, and the imprisonment is less than five years, and the penalty, the fine, is uh, not to exceed $5,000. And then for any second or subsequent conviction under this subsection, the person shall be sentenced to, to life. Oh, wow. Pretty strong. Well, you know, and, and uh, to not whatsoever to, to downplay the, uh, the adverse health consequences of, of uh, uh, pregnant mothers uh, honestly abusing themselves and their, and their babies in the womb when they're ingesting drugs while they're pregnant. But it's also very expensive, as you know, to to deal with a likely uh, higher probability of having a problematic delivery. Um, and then you've got to deal with the, the, the infant after it's been born uh, under these conditions. And given the fact that in the state of Mississippi, 57%, according to the latest data, of babies born are actually covered by Medicaid, that cost is on the taxpayers. And right. and I just want to inter- interject this. Anybody that's ever been to the neonatal intensive care unit at uh, UMMC, it, it'll it'll change you forever. I promise. If you just make a tour through there, and especially when you learn that the vast majority of these small humans that are that are being cared for in there by wonderful staff, honestly, was avoidable. It's totally avoidable. Totally avoidable. Exactly. And, exactly. And and like you said. Uh, what these what these children as they grow up will suffer, uh, and you know they may not be able to have the the type of life that that most would. Yeah. Uh, they'll be dealing with health issues uh, for the rest of their lives. So um, I think it's strong language, but I really think it needs to happen. Yeah. I also have a bill uh, that touches on Medicaid and uh, neonatal, and that is for Medicaid to cover circumcision of baby boys at the hospital. I didn't know that Medicaid did not cover that. I didn't either, till I read this. Yeah. Uh, I'm friends with um, obstetrician here in Columbus, and she treats about, I believe, 30% Medicaid patients. 
And she said that moms are scrambling at the hospital trying to come up with the cash. Hmm. And if you're on Medicaid, the last thing that, that you're able to do is put out three to $400 because that's about what it costs. And you have to come up with the cash. So they're asking grandmothers and friends and uncles and aunts to, you know, donate. And it's it, it's a health issue, yeah. as we know, and it's a hygiene issue. And so that's just something. If you're on Medicaid, that's a lot of money, and uh, I think we need to cover that. I had no idea. I honestly, I had no idea that 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 was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, well. So is this something you knew about before that you have um, drafted legislation on and offered? I did. I drafted it last year, but uh, we didn't. Medicaid didn't meet last year in the House. Right. So I think this would be good for the Medicaid tech bill. Um, I'm really hoping we can get it forward. I believe that a mirror bill, uh, I believe Senator Boyd indicated that she was looking to uh, also draft a bill. I told her about it earlier in the session. She was amazed, didn't know about it either. And uh, so. It, it seems to me, because you're right, my understanding is that this could cause a down the road health problems, and often these children remain covered on Medicaid. That costs more money than the three or four hundred bucks for a circumcision. <laughs> That's just government at its finest right there. <laughs> exactly. Wow, that is incredible. All right, uh, HB 1537, provide immunity for reporting sexual offense. Sounds okay. reasonable. What's up with that? Yeah, I've got a stack of bills here. I'm just going through. I don't <laughs> no know problem. the numbers. I'm no problem. Okay, uh, this was a bill that was um, sent to us by RAIN. The organization is R-A-I-N-N. It's the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. I filed a bill for them uh, last year, a couple years ago, and it finally passed last year. It was to change the definition of rape. I was on your show when we talked about that. It was a very antiquated uh, definition previously to forcibly ravish a female of previously chaste character. And now we have a rape statute that prosecutors can actually use that mirrors the sexual assault, sexual battery statute. Um, every 68 seconds in the United States, someone is sexually assaulted. Wow. Every 68 seconds. And every nine minutes, that person is a child. So, um, we need to make sure that if someone does report sexual abuse, sexual assault, that uh, there's immunity for reporting that sexual abuse. Uh, they may be uh, not necessarily involved, but a, a, a witness to it, and uh, they may be doing something improper as well, not with respect to the sexual assault, but say they're on drugs or doing something else. There's total immunity under this bill for reporting any type of sexual abuse. Hmm. And um, it's unfortunate, but not everyone reports sexual assault. Many, many do not. And I think it's only 25 out of every 1,000 perpetrators actually end up in prison. So we really need to do more about reporting and all of that. You know, there's so much going on. I mean, we're hearing of the mother that, you know, pimped out her 11-year-old child 
uh, for sexual assault to pay off a drug uh, tar or pay off a, a, a drug dealer. You know, just last week in Monroe County, we've had someone that was uh, charged for human trafficking young girls. Right. It's it's so prevalent, and uh, we've really got to, to crack down on all of it across the board. So, uh, as I understand it, you have a kind of a related bill concerning major medical leave in the circumstances of sexual assault? Assault? Right. So this would be, this only applies to state employees at this point. Uh, you know, we can't force private employers to 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 really take this up. But it, it would allow uh, for major medical leave for someone, say, who has been uh, raped, sexually assaulted, has been a victim of domestic violence. You know, they may need to go... Uh, see their doctor, they need to go see a therapist. So this would allow some medical leave similar to, you know, when you have a baby, you have some medical leave uh, opportunities. But this would allow some medical leave uh, for treatment for those issues, whether it be domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, some of those. Right. Interesting. Well, I mean, that this stuff just makes sense. Um, Yeah. Surprising that we're struggling, I guess, to get some of these just common sense measures on the books here. Right, right. Well, and I'm an advocate for uh, anything that touches women, children, families, and um, you know there are so few females in the house. I think we have 18 women now out of 122 members, and sometimes these types of bills. Um, are in the forefront of, of our minds, and uh, so I think we just need to, uh, you know, put more interest in it, uh, put, put more attention to these types of bills, and protect our, our girls and women and children and men and all across the board. Yeah. Representative Dana McLean, thanks so much for coming on and breaking all that down for us. I, I, you were well prepared, and I appreciate that. I know it's a lot, so we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Gerard. Good Co- to be with you. Thank you. Appreciate you coming on. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. The great Steely Dan. So you uh, probably know by now that AT&T has stated that the cause of the outage yesterday was a software upgrade glitch. I got to tell you, I was saying that on my social media before they announced it. That's what I thought it was. Now, maybe that's because I spent a career in the networking industry, but here's what I can tell you. Networks fail. Shock. They just do. Uh, here's what's crazy if you think about it. 
Can you remember the last time there was such a widespread outage? I can't. It's pretty no, rare. Not it's, off the top of my head. It's pretty rare. And and um, customers, consumers expect never. I mean, that's the expectation. 100%. Never. Uh, I lived in that world. And, and I'm not saying they're wrong to expect that. I realize they rely on all these tools, be it voice or data or whatever the case may be. So you'll know, um, in the in the telecom services industry, and now it has been applied in the cloud services industry, the, the IT as a service, okay, industry. And what I mean by that is, as opposed to building your own IT infrastructure on your premises, having all your servers and your software and your network and that, and you're just delivering it within your four walls, so to speak, you consume it as a service from third-party providers, such as such as your software companies. We, I'm sure, will. We probably have some software we use that is subscription-based. It lives out in somebody's cloud. Could be Amazon's. Could be Google's. Could be Microsoft. And we just simply log on remotely to that and consume that software. Right? We pay a fee for that subscription fee. Well, if you if you uh, study the contracts. There's probably some language buried in there that discusses what's called a service level agreement, an SLA for short, the acronym. And basically what it says is we guarantee this thing will be up and available for X percent. There usually is a fairly complicated calculation. X percent of the time you're going to be up. And if you're not, we'll, we'll issue you a credit. And believe it or not, that's rooted in old service level agreements from telecom carriers going back to the 70s when they would supply you a connection, if you think about it, to your office to get to the outside phone world. Uh, By the way, we call those POTS lines, P-O-T-S in caps. You know what that stands for? Plain old telephone service. I'm not kidding you. That's the formal name of it. You go look it up right now, POTS lines. And we talked about that in my business all the time. Well, they got a couple of POTS lines. Somebody says, what's that? Play no telephone service. But where I'm going with this is you've got these service level agreements. And I don't know with respect to your self-service. I haven't really studied that. But I know in the cloud services business, it's pretty common. And in the software as a service subscription business, all that's very common. Um, and that usually they'll stipulate you'll be up. Ours was 99.997% of the time. And there's a calculation. We actually had that in our contract. For example, if we are down this much, it's this times this divided by that, and that's how we calculate that. And I'm happy to say that in our 20 years, while I was still involved with the company of operating a data center, only had one situation where we ever had to to uh, comply with that and, and provide a refund, essentially. for a, And it was a couple hundred bucks. It wasn't anything major to one customer because it, it was our fault. Um, but you build these systems so resilient now so that even any failure, there's their failover, electronic failover processes that usually are going to take care of that. But sometimes you can boo-boo when you're applying software updates. Ever had that problem? You apply a software update, you host something up? Yeah, I think almost everybody listening has probably had that. You wouldn't think that from a major company like AT&T, but even the best the most sophisticated, the most skilled, just happens. Uh, but hopefully that dispels a lot of the really crazy off-the-wall theories of what uh, this was all about, from well, the solar flares yeah. to the Chinese and cybersecurity well, attacks. That the was Russians. the interesting one to me nah. because that had 
you know, that had been brought up, what, two weeks ago. Yeah. And so, is it the Russians? Nah, had nothing to do with that. And and so this is fairly common. Um, usually, a problem like this doesn't break on such a widespread basis. Something. That means they're applying this to some distributed core network that just had a, a much more substantial overarching effect. But yeah. that's where we are today. Um, on the ceasefire text line, I know... Uh, I, somebody said, I want to send somebody to Washington to stop the spending, not bring money home. I basically said, well, he can't get elected, uh, in my view. And what spending do you want to cut? He said, I know they can't get elected, uh, and that's part of our problem in this country, and I can't list what spending exactly. You said you hear people in Mississippi say, send, send so-and-so to Washington so they can bring the money home. I was just saying that I'm the opposite, and, and I appreciate that. Unfortunately, though, if you said, hey, look, I want you to go to – if somebody said, I'm going to Washington. By the way, I'm, I'm going to cut back on the amount of money sent back to Mississippi. I'm estimating you probably can't get elected. If you do that, you'd have because what would happen is all those all those people that benefit from that that are big donors to campaigns, they're they're going to button up. You're not getting any of their money, and and therefore it makes it really difficult to get elected. So I've said it so many times on the program before. This is happening in all fifty states. So you got four thirty five in the House and one hundred in the Senate. And they're all up there thinking about how can I get that money back to my my constituents, back to my state. The next thing you know, we're thirty four trillion in debt. Yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, Mike from Madison, I oh, was talking about uh, an analogy on how big a trillion is. Yeah, it's a bunch. Uh, let's see there. Uh, I'm not – I was talking about on the – Ben from Madison's talking about Medicaid expansion. I'm not buying the whole it will increase workforce participation thing they are currently pushing. I'm not either, Ben. And I – if, if – um, as far as proponents who uh, are advocating for for Medicaid expansion – expansion of the Medicaid program, I don't buy that. And I say that in the article, that I don't buy that that uh, we'll see this, like all these people coming off the sidelines who presently are not working that can. Oh, I can get Medicaid now, but i got to work. I'm going to work. I don't see that. I think, in my view, and this is a suggestion to the legislature, let's go out and talk to some of the people that, that are eligible to work and find out, hey, come, how come you're not working? And maybe it's they just don't aspire for what work could bring them. Now, the left always says people really want the dignity of work, and I want to believe that as well, but our statistics don't bear that out. Why do we have the lowest labor participation rate in the country as a state? And I don't think for a minute that Medicaid expansion would improve that. I really don't. I don't think We all saw what happened during COVID when they started dropping money from helicopters. No doubt. And now we're now the we're paying for that. Participation number went way down. Yeah, and that, and that reminds me. You've probably seen. I know a lot of people have out there, mainly on Facebook. This um, oh, this this little um, uh, post. Uh, I guess I would call it that. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Yeah, today on November fifth, twenty twenty, mortgage rates are two point seven five percent. Gas is one dollar eighty a gallon posting this so it pops up every year to compare. And I know what they're trying to do is make the case for former President Donald Trump. We could get to that again today, folks. You know what you got to do? Close the economy down. If you shut the economy down like we did in COVID and say, tell everybody, go home and we're going to send you money out of helicopters, you could get the mortgage rates back to 275 in the gas. So if we go back to that, that means we've experienced a major recession. Yeah. Just because we're going to put somebody else potentially in the White House, it ain't going back to that. 
as a result of their policies. I don't believe that whatsoever. Yeah. I think we're looking at $2 trillion deficits as far as the eye can see. And as long as we're printing money to cover those deficits, it's going to be inflationary. I, I really do believe that. And the Fed's not going to, they're not going to pull back on rates. And I know Mr. Trump said he's firing Jay Powell day one, <laughs> Jerome Powell. If he's elected, he wants to bring somebody in there that's going to pull rates down. But if he pulls rates down and inflation's not under control, guess what happens? Oh, the old rates, uh, the old inflation goes back up again. You're not going to get mortgage rates down until you see house prices come down. And right now, that's not the case. We still have an excess demand oversupply. little pullback, but you're not going to see any major reduction in mortgage rates until we see house prices come down. I mean, that, that's just the way those dynamics work. So I would just caution against that. What are your thoughts on health savings accounts for a business owner? Dave Ramsey recommends. And, yeah, if you can afford it, I think it's a pretty good deal. Tate's Turf, LLC. Uh, ask that question. Let's see here. Um, <clears throat> very bold statements from Mr. Burton. Talking about Gannon Burton running for Senate. This is from Sam from Mount Hermon. Does he know that it takes a majority to pass any bills and the president has to sign them? I think he does. And this all goes back, Sam. You know, we've talked about this many times. People do need to at least express where they stand on key issues. I think uh, uh, Mr. Burton does do that. And, and he says, this is what I hope to get accomplished. And he, and he says, we're going to do this day one, two, three, four, et cetera. I, I appreciate that. But Sam's right. We've talked about that. It's a One person can't make all that happen. It's Ted Cruz saying, I'm repealing every single word of Obamacare. No, you're not. It's, it's um, oh, heck, what was his dang name? Uh, his, his name, uh, the Rick, uh, Rick uh, I can't remember it, the former governor of um, Texas that ran. And he got on stage and forgot. I'm going to shut down three departments. Rick Perry. Rick Perry. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And it's like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that. You don't have, but Sam's right. It's takes a lot to get this stuff down. That's why it's so frustrating. Final segment on Middays after this break. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. Well, NVIDIA had quite the explosive day um, after they announced earnings after the bell on Wednesday. I think the stock ended up up $110, $120, something like that. And that's really driving the markets. It's also up today as well. So uh, good news for that company, now the third most valuable uh, in the country. Wow. Behind Apple and Microsoft. That's in a very short period of time. And that just goes to show you the explosive this occurring uh, as a trend uh, with respect to artificial intelligence. These guys make the chips that are optimized for processing artificial intelligence programs and also for software development as well. Uh, KC, on the ceasefire text line, I would love if someone at the State Department, uh, talking about education there, would take the proposed school funding formula and calculate the cost to the state. The bill states that no school district would receive less than what they've received this year, so it would have to be more then that was was allocated for this school year. The State Department of Education has data on the different populations that require adjustment to the base student cost. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of factors, a bunch of metrics, as you know. We we went over that some of that yesterday. 
that um, are, are considered and are used to adjust the base amount, which I think is sixty six hundred fifty dollars. I'll see if, what I can find out, uh, Casey, if there's if there's any kind of total dollars estimated. If that's been that exercise has been completed to calculate what we're talking about under this new funding formula versus the MAEP two point three billion, I think is the total amount of the general fund expenditures on education last year. So, yeah, it's a good question. Jeff and Grenada says, mental note, never play trivia against Gerard. <laughs> I just happen to know a little bit about some of the music from that era. But beyond that, um, doesn't go too doesn't go too far. Uh, Nancy in the Delta, I'm a dinosaur from the Dark Ages and was a teenager when the Friends of Distinction music came out originally. It is still as good as it was then. I totally agree with you there. If trans males can't compete against the males, who who knows the, they are why they don't start their own they should start their own trans league instead of beating up the women. Oops, that would be fair competition. They may not win. Besides, nobody would go to watch Spence from Poplar Creek. Plus, I don't want to pay a bunch of money, honestly, for all the schools to have yet another league, another yeah. group, because there would be a lot of overhead associated with that. That's crazy. Did you see that? Was it a uh, girls' basketball game? I can't remember which state it was in. Yeah. Um, got hurt, right? Three of them got hurt. And like some 6'2 guy out there on the court. Some 6'2 guy out there with uh, a beard. <laughs> oh, know, man. And they had to forfeit the game, basically. I know. That's crazy. Jason Starkville, thanks, Biden, for giving them billions. Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh what is this? Senator Bryce Wiggins. Uh, this is from Thompson Greenwood. Who is willing to inform themselves? This is a tweet, evidently, where he's pointing to Frank Quarter with Magnolia Tribune. Medicaid is in the news a lot these days. Learn more about what it is and how it's funded. Oh, more signs of fracturing in the Senate. Yeah, my, my gut feel is this thing isn't going to pass. Um, that's just my gut feel. I could be wrong about that. Uh, first, I don't think the, the work requirements waiver is going to be approved and i don't think for a minute as i said that that gets people off the sidelines but i will say this that the hospitals continue to experience lots of uncompensated care and that's absolutely not sustainable i i uh, consumed a rather disturbing article uh yesterday from uh concerning the hospitals the, the community hospitals in the country I believe there's 700 of them. More than half are cash flow negative. More than half. That's not sustainable. So this isn't a problem that's unique to Mississippi, and it's not a problem, like I said, that Medicaid expansion is going to solve. But it's also absolutely true that getting paid from somebody for services is better than not getting paid at all. I don't see how anybody could argue that. That's That's pretty common sense. Whether or not Medicaid is the best payer. But I do think this. I think we're headed to single payer. I really do. And the reason I say that is because we can't seem to get together on how to achieve universal coverage. We have people that, even though they don't have insurance, are still getting free health care. The welfare maybe not is not coming from taxpayers, although if that's being provided by public hospitals, like we have so many of them in Mississippi, it is. taxpayers are paying for it. It is welfare right now. The hospitals just aren't getting paid for it. If it's a private hospital, they're not getting paid for it. And all they're doing is passing that on to us in our commercial private premiums to stay afloat. 
the um, the urban hospitals in the state of Mississippi they're struggling financially. They're struggling across the across the country. Seven hundred community hospitals upside down, and that of course that's not sustainable. I don't I don't know what's going to happen there. But my fear is is that by kicking this can down the road, I'm talking about as a country and not addressing the core issue of um, just the financial struggles, again, not just of the rural and the other hospitals in Mississippi, but across the country, I think that's pushing us closer and closer to single payer. And why can that work? Because the federal government can print money. They don't have the restrictions everybody else does, a private business or the state of Mississippi. But we have reached the conclusion of the program today. We certainly hope that you have enjoyed it. Will and I will be back with you again on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend, stay safe, and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.